Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, David Bindman. Bindman's new book is titled Race is Everything, Art and Human Difference. It examines 19th and early 20th century racializing science, sometimes referred to as pseudoscience, and how European art both influenced it and was itself influenced by it. The book pays special attention to the racialization of people of African and Jewish descent. It considers the skull as a racializing marker, Darwin and Darwinism, the construction of the Mediterranean, quote, race, Anglo-Saxonism, the racializing debate over Egyptians, and what art has to do with almost all of it. Race is Everything was just published by Reaction Books on both sides of the Atlantic. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about $37. Bindman is an emeritus professor at University College London and a fellow of the Hutchings Center at Harvard University. He's the author and editor of numerous books, including Ape to Apollo, Aesthetics and the Idea of Race in the 18th Century. On the second segment, Nikki Green at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive. But first, David Bindman, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th, to January 7th, 2024. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Becoming Van Leo, the first international survey of the late Armenian-Egyptian photographer. Working under a pseudonym, the artist known as Van Leo rose to prominence as one of the Arab world's most celebrated studio photographers from the 1940s to the 1960s. The exhibition follows his career into the 1990s and includes many works on public view for the very first time. Becoming Van Leo is on view at The Hammer from July 15th to November 5th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Now open at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Gary Simmons' Public Enemy is the first comprehensive career survey of the work of multidisciplinary artist Gary Simmons. Since the late 1980s, Simmons has played a key role in situating questions of race, class, and gender identity at the center of contemporary art discourse. Now, for the first time, through a major exhibition catalog and slate of related programs, visitors will gain a holistic understanding of the complex and profoundly moving work of this influential artist. Plan your visit to see Gary Simmons' Public Enemy at mcachicago.org. And we're back. David Bindman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. At the beginning of your new book, in fact, on its second full page, you point us to consider art's relationship to 19th century science or pseudoscience, really, a discipline to which the United States not only provided the leading actors, but a discipline which might be considered the first international science anything to which European Americans in the United States contributed. How did pseudoscience make use of art, specifically the Apollo Belvedere, which, of course, is a second century Roman sculpture now at the Vatican? 
Well, first of all, I'm not sure I'd talk about pseudoscience. I mean, there is a sense in that's what science was in the 19th century. And there's no distinction between, except with phrenology, which was regarded as a pseudoscience. But racial science was completely respectable. And most of the uh, you know, really great scientists like Georges Cuvier, they were very much committed to racial science. The, the point I've tried to make most strongly is that race, any ideas of race are essentially visual because they take the idea that what you see on the outside of a person can represent the inside. In other words, if you, you know, are black, then your uh, soul is black. And if you're white, your soul is white. And that's in its cruisers form and medieval form. But what happens is that science begins to come in in the 18th century through Linnaeus, who begins to classify the world, the people of the world into race, racial types. And that's by continents. So there are four great races uh, that represent the four continents. It gets more complicated as time went on because decided there were more than four continents anyway and then there were various subdivisions within those and truth is that race was never really defined as one thing ever i mean there was never any agreement as to how many races there were what they consisted of whether you can be a race if you're you know a small group or whether you have to be the size of a continent so it tends to uh, be what well it's it's what uh, Stuart Hall called a floating signifier. It simply floats around in, in all sorts of ways. And in a way, that was one of its, curiously, one of its strengths, because I think scientists did believe they could make real progress with understanding it. It was a, an open field that someone with genius could conquer and finally sort out in one way or another. The, the, the way it tended to to work was through really kind of psychology, really, that you could, by looking at someone's skull shape, and also to a degree their skin color, you could decide on whether they were people of intelligence, morality, or otherwise. And it was actually something that was, could be scientifically proven by measuring the skull. It's very strange and, and very hard to get one's a handle on, really, but it was really believed that the skull shape affected the brain inside and or, or the brain affected the skull shape and that there was a direct connection between physiognomy and human character. Again, nothing, not the sort of thing anyone could possibly believe today. And even the idea that a, a bigger brain meant you had a higher intellect, not, not that isn't even acceptable either. So you, if you see for someone like Cuvier, the, the brain was a kind of muscle that reacted to the world. And in an intelligent white person, it would expand and form the face in a particular way, particularly pushing the forehead forward. And But with a person of an inferior race, it would push towards the back. And so you begin to get a way of looking at the skull in terms of character rather than physiognomy itself. And it's so deeply rooted in the 19th century that it's 
very hard for anyone really to step aside and look at, at it from the outside, though one or two extraordinary people did. It does account for the enormous predominance of race in the 19th century. And, and in a way, I would argue why it's so troublesome today, because you know we're still lingering in the, the, there's the aftershock of that dominance. Why did those 18th and mostly 19th century scholars, scientists, seize on the Apollo Belvedere as their ideal? Why, why did that sculpture become the ideal? First of all, it was the most regarded as the ultimate in beauty. It was the most beautiful representation of a human being. And that meant that it was associated with European beauty and provided a kind of standard against which all peoples were measured. The second thing was that as a work of art, that being having the ability to produce great works of art was regarded as a racial plus. It meant that you were of a superior race. And with the Apollo Belvedere, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting because in the 19th century, or really in the late 18th century, it was assumed that the Greeks were the, well, the founders of European civilization. That, that's certainly true, but it's also thought that they were racially white as well, uh, and that we'd inherited. And of course, with, in, in Germany in the 1930s, they believed there was actually a physical descent of the Germans from the Greeks. But more to the point, it's establishing the idea of civilization as a, a racial attribute. So right away, like on the third page of your book, and then really continuing throughout, you emphasize the relationship between race, racialization, inherent capability, and beauty. These things all come together. The, these racializing scientists of the very late 18th and 19th century, um, and really into the 20th, make great use, like overwhelming use, of ancient art, especially yes. Egyptian and Greek art, and as we've already noted, Roman art. And they use Egyptian, Greek, and Roman art to argue for their categorizations, to argue for greater and lesser innate capabilities among humans from specific geographies. Why do you think they turned to and seized upon art? You know, why was that the hook on which they hung their hats? You've got all representations of humanity, and of course, you've got a very strong emphasis in the Italian tradition on the ideal human form. So I think that's certainly one reason. But I should also say that they looked at the ancient Egyptians differently. It wasn't from the point of view of beauty. The, what the Egyptians, ancient Egyptians, contributed to race was the idea that race was a permanent thing, that, went, that you can look at a, a profile in an ancient Egyptian painting or sculpture, and you can decide on its racial type, and you can see the same racial types in the present age. So when people like, well, Norton Glidden, particularly the infamous Norton Glidden in the 1850s were trying Josiah to... Josiah Knott and George Glidden, not George being an American metal doc, medical doctor, Glidden being the son of an insurance company owner who was a U.S. consul to Egypt and an amateur slash semi-professional Egyptologist. Yes, he was English, in fact, yes. And uh, so there's this, these two... Well, they weren't the pioneers. It was really uh, Morton was Samuel um, George Morton, a Philadelphia yes. MD, who was quite a character. Yes, and his, 
this collection of skulls still I, I think it's no longer to be seen in public, but it was until quite recently. But they they had a uh, they were really not very interested in in Greek art particularly at all. They were much more interested in the Egyptian. And the idea was that you could read back from a system of slavery in the southern states and then argue that it had uh, went back to the earliest part of civilization, the earliest civilized civilizations regarded as the ancient Egyptians. And they further argued that the, that the society was based on the enslavement of the Nubians. And, of course, the implication was the Egyptians were white and Nubians black, and so, therefore, slavery was a natural system that had a history going back to the beginning of time. So that's the role of the ancient Egyptians, which is rather different from the, the ancient Greeks. When I speak with students about some of this history as it relates to the work I do away from the podcast, one of the things they respond to most directly and clearly is especially in the United States, they think of art as being a commercial product. The art in, in the United States art world, the commercial market is so dom dominant that it is often striking to students that here is an era in which art has ideological power, yes. where art is used to construct ideologies. Is that specific to racializing science, or do you think that was more common across much of the eras about which you're writing about here? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's distinctive to race. It's also, you know, in, you've got whole traditions of caricature which were applied to the, you know, at least in England, to the Scots, to French, to the Germans, to everybody really who was not the same nationality, and even, of course, to different social classes as well. So it's not distinctive to race, but it is, I suppose, it's the, the power of the stereotype is the, the underlying idea that connects all these things together, that what artists can do and have done, often with extraordinary skill, is to reduce groups, peoples, nations to a single stereotype. And if you then apply that to race, then you get again the same sort of results, the idea that everyone in Africa looks the same, has the same characteristics, and even the same skin colour. In effect, what stereotyping and caricature does is reduce the complexities of people into one uh, single feature or group of features. And that's, that's not just distinctive to race, but it has a particular effect on race. And in fact, it's at the heart of of the way in which race is transmitted. For me, one of the real strengths of the book is the way you build connections between artists, and we're going to talk about artists, specific 19th and early 20th century artists in a minute, the way you build connections between artists and these racializing scientists, particularly around skull shape and forehead shape. And you do that by comparing these foundational texts by by Morton and Knott and Glidden and others and what they write and paintings we know often and sculptures we know often very well from the 19th and 20th centuries. Are there ways in which Knott and Glidden and Morton and others provided illustrations, engravings, what have you, within their texts that would have 
helped artists not just read text and understand the text, but understand the relationship between physiognomy and physiology <laughs> and, and the racializing ideas in, in their books. Well, yes. I mean, there are a lot of illustrations and hundreds of illustrations in Norton Glidden, but they tend to derive from others. And one of the, um, the most striking one is one he, they borrow from an early 19th century text by a, a, a follower of Cuvier, which shows, it's really horrible, really, but the Apollo Belvedere, then uh, a black head of a, uh, an African, and then an ape below. And this, these three are together on one page. And again, the reduction of it is it's extremely powerful, obviously. And if you're reading these things casually in the context of a scientific book, they've got an even greater power to persuade or just to make people feel this is the way things are. But in the page in which that these three are heads are reproduced. On the other side, you've got a whole range of caricatures of black people, often really nasty and extremely unpleasant. And this is something that Frederick Douglass latched onto immediately in Northern Glidden, which is that whenever Europeans are represented by their highest manifestation, that's to say the Apollo Belvedere, but when black people are shown in images, it's always by the most ugly or most caricatured. Uh, and this double page precisely makes that point, I think, of, of how stereotyping works. And But the point about stereotype, it's not just makes a statement. It's something that is re repeated endlessly and has enormous effects. And so you get these standard stereotypes that come again and again, particularly of African-Americans. They're in everywhere. I mean, I went to an exhibition at the Schomburg Center a few years ago, and it was room after room with images, really racial images, by the hundred on every wall. You know, they were everywhere, everyone's consciousness, not only in the United States, but in Europe too, was completely sort of swamped by all these horrible images, and they all point to the same thing. They all keep on repeating the same stereotype of large lips, woolly hair, and again, the implication of general stupidity or, or or harmlessness. So the point of stereotyping is the power of repetition, really. You can just keep on saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it goes on and did go on. There are also, you know, the 101 examples, mammy figures, you know, these pancake mixes and so on with the mammy figure, which went on until few years ago, well, last year, actually, they finally got rid of rather Alton mammy figure. But these have a long, long history. They're tied up to the ability of, of new printing methods to produce mass-produced images at almost no cost. So the effect of the industrialization of, of imagery is, is very powerful, I think. Let me pull out two things you said there regarding Frederick Douglass's interest in racializing science, Douglas collected sculpture and casts of sculpture. And to this day, his sculpture and cast collection remains at his house, what is now the Frederick Douglass National Historic yes. Site in Washington, D.C. Regarding the impact of the reproduction of images, 
in the 19th century United States, particularly in the first half of the 19th century, first 60 years of the 19th century, Philadelphia was the hub of American printmaking, of engraving and lithography. And so the engraving and lithography trade industry in Philadelphia contributed massively to Morton's work, to Naughton Glidden's work. And that work is all still there in Philadelphia. You can go to the American Philosophical Society and call the engravings that Morton had made for his Sorry, first book or second up. or third books too, I guess, really. And also at the library company in Philadelphia. So let's talk about some of the artists you raised in the book. I think one of the real valuable, powerful, indeed new things about your new book is that you connect all the ideas we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes to specific artists and to specific works in ways that I think will encourage other historians and art historians to look a lot more carefully at a lot. Let's start with two French artists, Jericho and Delacroix. They both represented Africans in their work. How how did they do that? And how does how they did that relate to the history we've been talking about? Well, one of the things I've argued in the case of Jericho, he does do one or two heads of of Africans, particularly that wonderful one on the cover of the book, the Getty of Joseph, his assistant. But what Jericho seems to do when he's, uh, and he was a quite a fervent abolitionist, we know that, is that he tends to concentrate on the body rather than the head. If you're trying to make a point about racial difference, you would then talk about the skull, and you want to emphasize the difference. You talk about the skull and the shape of it and you know the size of the brain inside and so on. But if you're trying to make a point about the brotherhood of man and people's common humanity, if you focus on the body, you can make that point much more implicitly, I think. And the strongest example would be the painting of the Raft of the Medusa, where you've got a number of black bodies among the white on the raft, you know, either dying. And then, of course, the the liveliest person, the person sees the flag, is actually a black figure going up. But what you aren't conscious of is their faces, much more of their bodies. And their bodies are, if you like, suffer in exactly the same way as the, as the white people on the raft. So that's certainly a very clear difference. Uh, again, Delacroix is a, a little fuzzier. He wasn't particularly interested in abolitionism at all, and his interest in black models was clearly quite, you know, very sexual. But he, again, tends to uh, use older tropes, sometimes the black servant and so on. But he was actually very interested in Jews, and when he went to North Africa, he became quite friendly with members of the community. He again, saw them as really a like the Arab natives, uh, and I don't think he had a particularly strong racial sense of them. But his emphasis, is, as far as I can see, at almost no point in the black body tends to be the, unless it's a female body, sexualized body. So there is a very clear distinction there to me anyway. How did Charles Cordier imbue his sculptures with racialized difference? Well, Cordier is really a very complex figure because in some ways, he's quite progressive, and he makes the point that Europeans don't have a monopoly of physical beauty, the way that others would have said. And he does look very closely at his figures quite objectively. He's in a very sort of 
strange position because on the one hand, he's an artist who exhibits in the, uh, the salon and sells his sculptures and works of art, but he's also treated very seriously as an anthropologist. And his work was collected by the National Museum of Anthropology and was shown there among casts of, of heads and so on. And that ambiguous position makes him, I think, particularly interesting. He clearly had some racial beliefs, or at least a racial framework to his belief, but he was considerably less dogmatic about on questions of physical beauty. And, you know, if you like, he's at the sort of liberal end of the, the racial spectrum. Is there a Cordier sculpture or two that you think communicates his ideas or his approach particularly clearly? Well, yes, there's one in the um, well, there's one in the, in, the, in the Met in New York. And what's interesting to me about it is its title keeps changing. It's sometimes seen as the sort of Nubian Venus or the Black Venus. Sometimes she's given a name that ties her down to particular countries and so on. And I think that's where the, the conflict in his mind came out. On the one hand, he wants to emphasize the beauty of these figures, so they're black Venuses. On the other hand, he wants to keep his anthropological credentials alive by giving it a more specific title from you know, a particular region. He does that with several of his images. But what's also interesting is that they were extraordinarily popular and rather unexpected people. I think Queen Victoria and Prince Albert owned a couple of Cordiers, and I think Napoleon III liked him as well. So you've got, uh, I, I think, a lot of, in, in Cordier's case, he's playing quite a, a clever, well, walking a tightrope, perhaps, between different attitudes within France. That's a fascinating sculpture. Um, it's among the works Elise Nelson discussed on this program when she was a guest last year. We will have a link to our show with Elise on the show page for this show. Another artist you write about is a British artist named George Daw. And there is, I don't know how to describe it except as an, as, as an extraordinary and odd painting he made of a man versus beast fight painting that is now at the Manil. What is that painting and how is it a representation of um, a specific ideology? That's again an interesting painting because we know who the model was uh, for the the black figure. It was um, a Boston sailor called Wilson who came to London and was spotted as a model. And he was regarded as particularly extraordinary because not only because of his, the beauty of his physique, but the fact that he was able to uh, seem to be able to transform himself into either a figure of Apollo or into Hercules. He seemed to somehow be able to mutate his body in a way that meant that he became the sort of perfect model. He could get all the different classical archetypes in, in one go. But the, the, the painting itself is a representation of, I suppose, the trope of savagery that blacks in the wild can be as ferocious and strong as 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 a wild animal and can fight wild animals directly in a way that is lost to Europeans. So in one ways, it's actually rather racist and patronizing to our eyes and, and represents this 
again, idea of, of, of Africans as being at a lower level of civilization, being primitive or in a state later called of arrested development. So it's, it's, it fits in with some of the more unpleasant racial tropes in the 19th century, but it is a very exciting painting. Surely no Englishman of the era could imagine himself or anyone he knew actually fighting a bear. No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although maybe in California in the 1840s, but we'll leave, we'll leave that alone. One of my favorite sections of the book is when you address how in Germany and in Britain especially, the 19th century saw artists embrace landscape as a means by which they could engage or advance a racialized nationalism. I think that happens in the U.S. too, but the U.S. is beyond your brief. As, as a way of maybe beginning to discuss that idea, how does Caspar David Friedrich engage land and landscape in a way that advances the relationship between race and nationalism and land? I mean, what, what's slightly problematic is that at least Friedrich and Runger and the other German artists I talk about, or indeed the English ones, at, at no point use the word race or talk about it. They talk about really nation, really. And again, that's a very inchoate notion for them. Because in Germany, there is no nation of Germany at that point, not till 1870. So you've got this vague idea of nation. And you've also got a very strong return of spiritual ideas and need for religion after the French Revolution. And this produces a mixture that is in some ways quite toxic between religion and nationality and nationalism. And of course, there were, you know, I love Friedrich's paintings, but there's no doubt that there is a, a quite a brutal form of nationalism there, which is bolstered by religion as well. So when Friedrich talks about France, he doesn't just simply say he doesn't like the French or the, you know, whatever. It's, you know, they are beyond the pale. They are people who have no religion. And he sometimes talks as if, you know, one has to wipe out people like that. So this is something that's much closer to, I suppose, our idea of, of racism at its worst. And it's, of course, obviously very problematic for Germans and Germany. And, of course, it's not all negative because, you know, they were, after all, fighting for liberation from the French and some degree from the princes. And it's it's a, a very complex idea. But I've argued that it's, again, a form of racism that they're espousing. And it's particularly true with one or two of Friedrich's friends who managed to combine anti-Frenchness with anti-Semitism. You know, that the idea that the French are the Jews of Europe in, in the most negative sense. It's a complex idea, but I would argue that it's, it's, it is, if you like, part of the story of race and art in the 19th century. I think perhaps my two or three favorite sentences in the book are these. You, you were just discussing Friedrich and the Germanic states in Germany. These two sentences are about Britain. Quote, the British imperial project created a need for its supporters to justify the seizure and exploitation of distant lands and their peoples by defining their settled populations as savages who were incapable of aspiring to human rights. 
Races, boundaries with ideas of nation are particularly porous, and they can vary greatly both within and outside it. And of course, that, that, that happens when American art, United States art, explodes into the land in the 1840s after Emerson. From kind of, I think there in the book, you go on to detail British art and its relationship to Anglo-Saxonism, Anglo-Saxonism being the means by which Brits and European Americans defined imagined themselves into racial superiority. And in a fascinating chapter, you detail the relationship between British art and Anglo-Saxonism through mostly portraiture. How did portraiture construct or extend Anglo-Saxon ideas and constructs and make it one with kind of British nationality? Well, uh, I think various ways. Certainly by physiognomy is one obvious way but also by a whole tradition of paintings where you have black servants. What's interesting, at least in the 18th century, the tendency is for the you know noble people who are being the subjects of the paintings to be quite plainly dressed in relation to their slaves and servants um, very often. And that means that you get a, well, what a friend has called ornamental blackness of blacks being dressed up as exotic creatures who are then shown in adoration of their uh, 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 of their masters or mistresses. So that's certainly one of the principal ways that, that art does that sort of job, really. And of course, in, in satire, in Hogarth, for instance, there are quite a few black figures who, again, are often associated with very soft and uh, sybaritic living of people who um, you know, pursue pleasure recklessly and have uh, little black servants as pets. So they're, again, given a very specific place in, in the sort of world of, well, the aristocratic royal world. And again, to have a black servant was regarded as, you know, fashionable and exotic and a sign of sophistication and general urbanity. And, and that's, I think, quite distinct from the economics of plantations, which was, again, a rather different way of enslaving people, much more brutal, much more reductive people to their uh, ability to work and nothing else, quite without any humanity. Who was George Frederick Watts, and how did his portraits, portraits-ish, help construct Anglo-Saxonism visually? Well, George Frederick Watts is, is a strange character. And someone I, I find very hard to get a handle on, really, because he seems to believe in everything. He seems to come out on all, all possible sides. He's very soft about ill treatment of animals. He seems to be sympathetic to uh, abolitionism, but he's also powerful imperialist as well. And he seems to believe in all these opposites. He's fervent Christian. He's also very interested in um, Darwin and evolution. And and I, I think he, he also, I mean, that the most imperialist and I suppose arguably racist of his images is one of Sir Galahad in the fog, which is a gentle, perfect knight. He's very much defined as an Anglo-Saxon knight. And he gave the painting, always amuses people over here anyway, that he gave this painting to Eton College. And so it's actually as you go into the, the chapel every morning, every boy would have 
seen this painting before they went to compulsory chapel. And I think that goes on up to this point. Lots of jokes were made about Boris Johnson and <laughs> the effect of eating on him and um, <laughs> obviously failed. What's failed completely in his case. I suspect that picture is better known on your side of the Atlantic than than ours. We will certainly have it on man podcast.com well, on, there is, there on is the show page. There is a version in the fog in the uh, Harvard Art Museum. Full-size version of it. Which is on display. We'll, we'll get that one, too. We'll get that image, too. I mean, I, I think that that kind of Arthurian stuff had was just as powerful in the U.S. as it was in Britain. Emerson was just passionate about anything to do with English values and Anglo-Saxon values. And, and I think what people find hard to get their heads around, which I, I must say I did myself, was that Emerson was a fervent abolitionist. So he's both you know, a good guy in that sense. But then when it comes to Anglo-Saxonism, it's another story. Emerson became a strong abolitionist, albeit a bit late. And of course, Nell Irvin Painter's great book, The History of White People, which Dr. Painter and I discussed a bit on this show when when she was on the program a number of years ago, is a real touchstone for me and motivated my own book on Emerson, which was also discussed on this show once upon a time. And of course, it was Emerson who popularizes Anglo-Saxonism in the United States. It's Jefferson who substantially introduces it during the colonial and early U.S period. Jefferson has this notion, idea, plan, I'm not sure what the phrase would be, to teach the Anglo-Saxon language at his University of Virginia. Jefferson had lots of ideas, but it's Emerson who who explodes these ideas into yeah. the U.S. mainstream in Boston, New England, and then nationally when he begins to hit the Lyceum lecture circuit. Let's advance into the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist era. You write that of all the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists, quote, Degas was the one most interested in and influenced by the ramifications of racial science. How was Degas influenced by such, and how and where might we see that in his work? I think, again, in physiognomy, I've argued that some way he constructs male and female heads does uh, show some strong interest in the idea of the, the skull shape. And I think that's also true in one or two of his slightly off-center works. I mean, again, even in the little the sculpture of the ballerina of age 14, who's, and there was a lot of comment at the time on her animal-like physiognomy. And he does seem to have had some interest in the way in which physiognomy was applied to criminals. You get a particularly particular interest in trying to differentiate uh, Jews, a figure of people he knew, often his closest friends, of, um, and he was very careful when painting them often to give them slightly what he would have thought as a slightly awkward sort of difference, as it were, from his own contemporaries. But what I've focused on is something that's much less talked about, which is Degas. Uh, interest in in African Americans, and there I think there's a very complex and interesting story because it's a story really of complete omission, at least in his paintings. When Degas, I mean, there are plenty of letters from Degas when he was briefly in New Orleans in the early 1870s, and he writes a lot about uh, about black people, and he's even has this wonderful phrase where he talks about New Orleans as being 
like a forest of ebony. And he notes you know, black women carrying white babies and so on. But there's barely a trace of them in his paintings. And in one, in his great painting, the Cotton Exchange in New Orleans, which is three greatest paintings, you notice there are actually no black people in it at all. And yet when he talks about the office, mentions it, there are lots of them described as, you know, coming in and out of of the office. And, of course, his uncle was very pro-Confederate and the whole family. And Degas' mother was a, a New Orleans Creole whose grandfather or great-grandfather actually came from Haiti was a refugee from Haiti in the revolution. So Degas and his two brothers went over to work in New Orleans or in that painting. So in a way, the family business was very much in New Orleans, and he was very closely associated with people who were quite fervent Confederate supporters, and of course who were defeated by the time Degas gets there, gets to New Orleans. And I raise the question, which I, and it's it's a speculation which a lot of people won't like very much, really. But I'm just wondering if Degas wasn't himself worried about whether he had black ancestry. Because he certainly had a black cousin. Uh, one of his cousins, uh, well, he didn't actually marry this black woman, but they had several children, one of whom was quite a, a famous scientist who eventually moved to Paris and was and there are photographs of him. He's very African-looking. So there is that, I think, a tension in Degas that around this whole issue that means that it's something that he doesn't feel he can face painting in some sort of way. But I, I've got no, obviously no proof that he did have any worries about black ancestry. I just infer it from, again, the omissions in his paintings. Fascinating. The whole the whole section on of the book on, on the late 19th and early 20th century is full of things I hadn't thought of before. One of them is the racialization of the Mediterranean. You write about Puvi and to a lesser extent, Mayol, and their susceptibility to racial science. How do we see those ideas in Puvi? And then I guess, how does Mayol really extend them? Well, I think there's a quite a, a conflict in France that's partly set off by the uh, Franco-Russian War. Um, and that's the question of the, the nature of, well, what, what race are the French, really, is, I suppose, in brutally the issue. Are they a northern people, like the Germans, or are they a Mediterranean people, or are they both? After 1870, ten, and I think if you get quite a few signs of it, you've got... Uh, a considerable amount of Provencal nationalism, which, again, I talk about that in relation to Cézanne. But there's also this idea of emphasizing Mediterraneanness of France. France is really, uh, in its, you know, it's really expressed most fully in its southern parts rather than the, the northern Germanic parts. And Puvi himself was, seems to have avoided any direct concern with politics, or, but he was thought of being uh, as the artist who united France uh, under this Mediterranean, uh, I suppose, ideology, you would call it. And that's where Mayol, I think, comes in, and he does this sculpture which he calls the Mediterranean. I mean, it has other titles at different times, but 
that's uh, and of course it becomes very political at this point. There are quite a few people who were making strong right-wing claims about this, you know, again strongly anti-German, and so it's 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 uh, I suppose almost a kind of hidden controversy. It doesn't always come out very strongly, but it's a deep tension, I think, in a number of artists. And well, if you think of Matisse, for instance, who comes from about as northern a part as you can get in France, but again, you know, his vision is increasingly southern, and he moves to the south. So it's again that attention, which so often takes a racial form, because there was a lot of talk about a Mediterranean race that point. The question of whether the Provencal race was part of that as well. And it's all very fraught. And the idea was that the Mediterranean was the center of the civilization because you not only were you by the Mediterranean, but you're also adjacent to Greece and to Italy as well. So it gives a totally different center of gravity to France, really. Matisse, of course, fascinated by both Puvi and a deep admirer of Mayol. Reading your writing on Mayol and and his attraction to willingness to engage racialization helped me understand or, or at least think differently about his willingness to be something of an accommodationist during World War II. And of course, Matisse's discomfort with Mayol's accommodationism is a significant subject in the late interviews he does with late in his career in the 40s with an interviewer I'm forgetting but but it comes up in in, in Matisse's own consideration of Mayol is the point I'm trying to make and so the the that section of your book has me rethinking a lot of that and really in, in ways I find interesting two more things one more artist I want to raise you have a really interesting section in the book on Emil Nolde who at the end of his career dances with the Nazis but you address work from earlier in his career. How and why? Yes, Nolder is, is a really fascinating figure to me. But uh, I must say that one of the things that I must say caused me some pain was when I was, when it came to paying for the photography, which is a pain in itself. But um, the thought of it going to the Nolder estate, you know, permissions was quite a, an unpleasant thought. But anyway, no. But Nolder is really, I, I think. Very interesting. First of all, he wasn't actually born German at all. He was actually Danish, uh, and his wife was Danish too, of course, from the borderlands. And his early work, his uh, earlier work, I suppose, has strong leanings towards early German or, you know, Renaissance German art and Grunewald and so on. And his religious work is really quite interesting. And again, in that sense, represents a Germanic form of, of nationalism, of looking back. And that was quite predominant in the early part of the century and with people like in the Brooker and so on. His problem was that he was highly enthusiastic about Hitler. And he thought, right, when Hitler came to power, he would then be the great German artist. And Hitler didn't like his work. And Hitler didn't like his work uh, because he'd really defined Nazi aesthetics around ancient Greece in the traditional way of racists. And so the kind of racism that Nolder offered was the wrong one for Hitler. There were people 
high up. I think Goebbels was supposed to have rather liked Nolder and so on. So Nolder suddenly find himself being cold-shouldered by these people. And so Nolder went to enormous lengths to demonstrate how what a good Nazi he really was to Hitler. I mean, you know, he often wrote to Hitler directly and, and, and you know, tried to push his work to the you know, high command in Germany, and it did not work. And then he had this terrible humiliation of being put in the Entarte to Kunst exhibition, the Degenerate Art exhibition. And he was furious about that, and he managed to get his work pulled out when the, the exhibition toured Germany. But he was someone, despite his you know, political soundness as far as the Nazis were concerned, he was just painting the wrong kind of pictures. But he then, how he did this, I don't know. But after the war, he said, ah, you know, I was a persecuted artist. And whoever was running the museum, Zebul, managed to keep a lot of the evidence out of the way. And he managed to you know, reclaim his position. And of course, the final indignity was that the German prime minister had a couple of Nolders in her office. And then eventually, I don't quite know the power struggles in Zebul, but the the family or the uh, direct followers of Nolder uh, lost control and some sensible people got you know, in, in charge of it and were able to tell the truth about Nolder. And there was a big exhibition which was totally you know, was totally open about his Nazi past. But, of course, it was never a secret because he wrote a few autobiographies in the 1930s, which is full of anti-Semitism and uh, pro-Nazi statements. And he had Jewish, a great well, a number of, of Jewish patrons who complained to him, even in the 1920s, about his anti-Semitism. Um, so none of it really was news, but Somehow or other, they managed to keep that under wraps all the way up to just a few years ago. And I thought he was a good, you know, a good way to end the the book because he might you might say, well, Nolder was um, a classic Nazi artist, but he really he wasn't because he was certainly a Nazi. Of course, he was an artist, but putting the two together is actually highly problematic. And so I thought that was a good if you like, open-ended way to end the discussion. I want to close our discussion by noting something I've probably underplayed so far, and that is the ideas we've been discussing, the ideologies being constructed in the 19th century were not unanimously carried forward. They were contested often, including by leading intellectuals such as Alexander von Humboldt, who will, of course, have an enormous impact on the United States, and, and of whom Americans such as Thomas Jefferson and John C. Fremont, wildly problematic, both of them, you know, they were they were both big Humboldt fans. How did Humboldt dissent from the ideas we've been discussing? It's quite interesting, this, this discussion, one of the themes, I suppose, that came from a question that was asked by Cornell West at a lecture I gave. And Cornell West said, well, in a sense, he said, you're painting a very bleak, bleak picture of the 19th century. Were there any exceptions? I said, well, yes. I mean, I, I think I mentioned Humboldt, but I also mentioned Georg, Georg Forster in the 18th century, who's a fascinating figure. 
who challenged Kant directly on his racial ideas. And I, I went away and thought about that and started looking. And in fact, there is, curiously enough, I mean, the point is not to be, you know, dissent from, from you know, grounds of slavery, but whether you to actually challenge the basis of racial science. And there were one or two people who did. There's a fascinating figure called Tiedemann, who is a German scholar, uh, and he did some of this challenge. Well, in fact, he was challenged by Samuel Morton because he was trying to measure racial difference by taking empty skulls of different races and putting seeds in them and then weighing them. And his conclusion was there was no difference between the races on that basis. Samuel Morton did the same ex experiment and said, oh, yes, there was, and came out and it confirmed his belief in a complete hierarchy of races. So you've got that sort of thing going on. But I think there is a kind of tradition in Germany with, you know, one or two uh, later people who resisted some of the you know, conclusions of racism. And, of course, w, great W.B. Du Bois was trained in Germany. And, of course, he picks up on some of this tradition, some of the arguments as well. But the, the one person I discovered very late in writing the book and managed to get a mention of him is someone I, I do want to... I think the only person who... Um, it's it's uh, The Equality of the Human Races by Anton, Antenor Fermat. And Antenor Fermat was a black Haitian of the 19th century who produced this book in the 1880s, which is a very long book that simply takes the whole theory of racial science apart in detail. And it was a book that was lost. It was only really rediscovered a few years back, you know. But it's a, a fantastic book. And I, I suspect that, I mean, it's not a, in a way, it's not a subject for an art historian, but for a historian to do is, I think that that, that tradition going back from 18th century liberalism through into the 20th century, I think there's more that could be done to define that tradition in opposition to racial science. It won't be very many people. And it seemed very, I think, stronger in Germany than anywhere else, which people again may find paradoxical. So I, I think that's, I'd like to see more work being done on that. And Antonor Fermat, Fermat being a household name, which he deserves to be. David Bindman, this has been uh, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Support comes from Getty, presenting The Gospel at Colonus, a one-of-a-kind theatrical event under the stars that reimagines the story of Oedipus as a redemptive musical celebration. Hailed as, quote, a feast for both the eye and the ear by the Chicago Theater Review, the show follows the blinded Oedipus as he seeks rest after a lifetime of tragedy, but he is pursued by enemies, including his own son. Based on Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus from the 5th century BCE, this adaptation blends Greek myth with black spiritual practice for a jubilant, life-affirming journey. Co-produced by Court Theatre, conceived and adapted by Lee Breuer, with music composed by Bob Telson. Thursdays through Saturdays, this September at the Getty Villa Museum. Book your tickets now 
at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Impressionist and Post-Impressionist Masterpieces from the Perlman Foundation. See works by outstanding artists such as Cezanne, Degas, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Manet, and Medigliani. During the late 19th and early 20th centuries, these artists had the ability to travel across Europe. They shared paths, shared ideas, and shaped each other's work. And this exhibition highlights their friendships, their locations, and sites of their work. The show is sponsored by Princeton University Art Museum, the Henry and Rose Perlman Foundation, and the Kinder Foundation, on view through September 17th. Learn more at mfah.org impressionist. Welcome back. Next, Nikki Green joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of What Has Been and What Could Be, the Bamfa Collection, which runs through July 7th, 2024, at the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive at the University of California, Berkeley. The exhibition was curated by Julie Rodriguez-Widholm with Anthony Graham. Green is a transdisciplinary artist who works primarily in clay. Her work explores topics such as history preservation, conceptual ornamentation, and aesthetics of otherness. She has exhibited at the Biennial in Lyon, France, at the New Museum in New York, and at the Musée d'Art Moderne in Paris. Next spring, she'll be included in New Worlds, Women to Watch 2024, at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington. Nikki Green, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks so much for having me. The 2015 work of yours on view in Berkeley right now is called Three States of Gender Alchemy. First off, what is gender alchemy? I think when I was making the work, I was thinking about gender alchemy as the way that my relationship to transness and transition as this process that is in a lot of ways really specific, as in like the transition of my gender or like the, say, medical intervention in my physical body, but then is also this kind of expansive thing, right? Like transition as a constant evolving way of being in the world, I guess. So the way that transition and maybe like an evolving relationship to my gender, my gender expression, my body, my body's relationship to the world around me is both constantly in flux and something that I'm not actively doing, but then also something that I'm actively doing. And I had been looking at alchemical mandalas in the studio quite a bit and seeing these really beautiful and I think pretty visually poetic depictions of both this idea of like the alchemist as this this character, this kind of icon that is like doing the transforming transformation, but then also this character, this icon called the sacred androgyne, which is depicted as this kind of bi-gendered body and is, you know, often sort of positioned in this beautiful way of being balanced and harmonious and sort of engaged with the world around them. And I just kept thinking about how the intervention at that point in time, I think this was 2014, 2015, the doing, the transforming of my body, the world, 
the world around me and like say a material practice all felt sort of interconnected and felt kind of like an exciting concept to illustrate on the surface of this vessel. We will have an image of three states of gender alchemy on manpodcast.com on the show page, of course. But for the sake of audio conversation, the vessel has three sides, each depicting a person in a different place doing different things. Why three states? I guess I would just start by saying that I'm in, I'm by no means an expert in alchemy. And I think of my role as an artist and really an artist interested in research. I think about my, my role as, as an artist as somebody who gets to sort of move into ideas and subjects and explore them as much as it sort of informs and supports my practice. But then I have this kind of luxury of being able to step away from the research when it feels appropriate to step away. And so I guess I say all of this because this comes up a lot actually with this piece, like what are the three states of gender alchemy? And certainly this is something that I investigate or investigated at the time that I was making this work, but I also don't purport to be like an expert on this at all. Historically, Um, is there ever such a thing as being expert in alchemy? I mean, kind of, it never worked. No way. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think also, though, you know, something that's become really clear to me over the years is that my desire for information is present in all of the work that I do, but also my ability to defer to those who know more than me is something that is actually quite pleasurable. I love to be able to look to somebody who deeply sort of is committed to a specific endeavor and to let them kind of do what they do in the most like thorough way possible. I think that that's kind of beautiful. So all of that to say the three states of alchemy that I was finding in some of my research was centered around this idea of both external and then internal alchemy these sort of processes of gleaning information, gleaning material from the world, the external alchemy, and then the internal alchemy of embodying and sort of taking on processing this information. So in the images, in the painted sort of surfaces of this piece, I would say maybe the first iteration of this is what I think of as sort of the androgyne harvesting or collecting organic material. And so this is external alchemy, the kind of pulling from the world around them, gathering into a basket the information. The second image is internal alchemy, and this is the androgyne placing sort of engaged with prepared fermentation crocs into a cellar. So it's sort of taking the information around the androgyne inwards and then processing that information into process, placing them into, you know, say the cold cellar or the pantry and sort of leaving them to ferment and transform in material 
And then the third surface being spiritual alchemy. And this is the sort of deep embodiment and transformation of the information itself. And it's depicted on this surface as the androgyne sort of moving out into an expansive body of water. Water immersion in Judaism, it's referred to as mikvah, but ablution and sort of like ritual bathing is a major kind of interest of mine and research point and feels like this kind of synthesizing of both information, but also the processing of information and then the embodiment of that information. So felt like kind of an exciting way to describe this kind of spiritual enlightenment or uh, kind of transformation within the body and then sort of moving outwards. This work is ceramic. A lot of your work is ceramic. What about clay makes it especially attractive as a medium to use to express and explore ideas such as transition and transformation? There's a lot about ceramic as a material and really a material technology that I find really inspiring. And to be honest, lately, a lot of the thinking and sort of processing I've been doing about ceramics as a material practice and material histories has been around this idea that ceramics in it, in and of itself is a trans material, that it has this kind of transphasal quality to it. And this is something that I'm starting to do some writing about and am looking to put these ideas a little bit more tangibly like out into the world. But all of that said, I think the initial draw to me was in one way, the haptic quality of it, that there was a real kind of satisfying, or maybe there is a real satisfying experience of touching clay and squeezing clay feels good as sort of basic as that is. I think that the pleasure of making is something that I'm very much drawn to and put a lot of significance into. But when I was making a lot of this work, I was really leaning on this idea that once fired ceramic is this permanent material. And as, you know, as a trans person, as a queer person, I am sort of constantly being reminded of my and my peers' mortality. And so the idea that transness could be recorded onto the surface of a ceramic object that would then certainly outlast my body was really beautiful and exciting, a little morbid, but also very real to think about. It's this kind of archival process of like painting and like recording onto ceramic. Lots of sculptors, especially those who work in ceramics, especially since Arneson and Andre and Truitt have interrogated the plinth and the thing on which sculpture traditionally goes or went. And you have two, including here in a way, and also in a body of work called Pillar of Earth. What are some of the ways in which you've upturned ideas around how a sculpture might be presented and why have you found that an important or necessary thing to do? The plinth is such a fascinating object in the way that it, you know, I think in a really naive sense, tries to be neutral or an extension of a gallery space, this kind of like, it's not here, but it's here. That act of 
fabricating something that is meant to not be seen or meant to not be focused on. I find it so fascinating to think about the material and kind of physical presence of those objects. You know, look at me, don't look at me. And really, actually, I think I might even go as far as saying that there's a kind of relationship to transness in in that idea of kind of playing with maybe juggling the idea of passing, assimilating the way that a form is visible and not visible in space. So, you know, I, I mean, I could talk about this endlessly, but specifically to, to speak to the plinth, I, for a long time, felt really resistant to using the language of the gallery, the language of the museum in the sort of furniture sense. I was really inspired or am really inspired by the way that Arlene Sheckett talks about the furniture or like the architecture, I think is the language that she uses, the architecture of the object. And for an exhibition, I did a solo exhibition I did in San Francisco in 2019 at All Etc. Gallery. We built out the gallery furniture using like a stash of two by fours that the gallery had in their sort of back room. And there was something so exciting to me about the provisional quality of the furniture. I think about it a lot as the kind of like diasporic quality of the furniture, the way that the anchor, the way the architecture, the way that the objects are kind of situated in space can sort of change and evolve with the work or the exhibition itself. And also there have been a number of pieces that I'm engaging with furniture specifically or props specifically. So these pillar of earth pieces, which is an, is in an addition of 10, are built to prop or sort of lift five-gallon buckets off the floor. I had been in a tech study, like kind of Jewish tech study workshop and, you know, maybe over lunch or something was chatting with a colleague who was telling me about their experience working with what's called the Hevrakadisha. It's the like kind of holy community that engages in rituals around death and dying for Jewish people. And, you know, naturally as like a an objects person and a ceramics person, I was like, ooh, what are the vessels that you use to wash the dead? And this person said, oh, you know, like Home Depot five-gallon buckets. And I was so excited about that. There was something <laughs> so kind of shocking to me about like an orange plastic bucket being this sacred ritual object. And at first, my instinct was like, oh, I'm going to make them ceramic vessels, you know, like ornate specific vessels that they could use instead of these plastic buckets. But in that sort of processing, began to realize that there is so much kind of holiness in the kind of ubiquitous sort of bright, like utilitarian orange plastic and so instead of making the buckets, which, you know, as an aside, I went on to to make five-gallon buckets and 
that continues to be a form that I'm interested in making in ceramic. But for that body of work, I was really interested in trying to like literally elevate five gallon buckets up off the floor and create these kind of like, like ritual stands for them and find a way to shift or focus the attention to the five gallon bucket itself and not like what the five gallon bucket holds or stands for conceptually. It's an arresting form. A number of these, well, at least one of these Pillar of Earth works features bricks. Pillar of Earth 2, I think, uses bricks sort of in lieu of plinth. This is all a transition, (laughs) tortured as it is, as I'm saying it, to note that you use and adapt bricks a lot. You use bricks in as kind of a, 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 a physical base on which other things sit. Sometimes you stick bricks into other things. There are bricks all over the place. Why so many bricks? Why do you like bricks? What is useful and adaptable about bricks? I mean, bricks are really, I think, miraculous objects. And they are so basic. Basic meaning like base material, right? They're like earthenware clay slapped into a mold that is, you know, like four by eight by four, or maybe like four by eight by three. These really kind of like simple, elemental objects that are, you know, have been used and continue to be used as building materials since like the beginning of time. This is like such an important object in the development of culture, architecture, the way that humans congregate and interact with each other. All of that said, a lot of the earliest brick work that I was making or work sort of that featured bricks was around this idea of the utilitarian object, the utilitarian ceramic object that exists in a kind of ubiquitous sense in the world that becomes a sort of riot tool just by the change in context. So I had been making ceramic bottles, like alcohol bottles, and would show them with uh, handkerchiefs like stuffed into the neck, and they would sort of move from alcohol vessel or just vessel to Molotov cocktail just based on the context of the rag in the neck. And so similarly, the brick as a building material when sort of picked up and like chucked through like a window or something becomes this violent riot tool almost immediately. And it's really only through that contextual transformation that the object becomes something else entirely. And so for for a lot of that early work, I was taking these bricks and applying ornate glaze surfaces to them, painting them with often like kind of floral patterns and specifically florals that were conceptually relevant to queerness. I kept thinking like, you know, in the rubble of the revolution, how amazing to find these sort of ornate like floral riot tools like in the detritus. And so that was a huge push for me. Later on, I started to develop, I would say, maybe different language around around the brick 
and specifically the way that the word brick gets used within trans communities to describe trans women who either don't pass as cis women or are maybe just like considered sort of unattractive. This this idea of the brick is used sort of derogatorily, but within the trans community. And there's something there for me about a brick being this revolutionary tool and the brick being the transness that is visible in the world. And so I developed a body of work and a sort of performance lecture about this called Soft Brick that describes the deconstruction of a particular kiln at UC Berkeley that had been built by uh, Peter Volkis, who developed the ceramics program there. And really the kind of violence of patriarchy, the violence of brick as a sort of concept. And in this performance, I sort of read this text that I wrote where I'm sort of connecting the idea of being visible as a trans person, as a trans woman, the violence of sort of patriarchy, the the violence of the brick as a sort of revolutionary tool, and through the lecture showing slides of both my work using these porous soft bricks from the kiln, and then also the kilns themselves as these sort of sites of violence. On the show page, we will include a link to the Vimeo version of that performance so listeners can click and see relevant slides, audio, never the same as being there. Another form that recurs in a whole heckin' lot of the work is fungi and shapes that are sourced in fungi and references to the biological shapes that fungi grow out of and into. He says, like a non-expert. So, for example, you've winked at Brancusi's The Kiss with a 2017 sculpture called Kissing Figures, a work that features morel-like forms. What got you thinking about fungi? A lot of interests of mine stem from this way in which I'm looking for queerness and transness in the world around me. This is something, you know, when I think when I think deeper about that practice what comes up for me is this idea that as a young person a young queer and trans person in particular there was so little cultural material that read as sort of explicitly queer or trans around me that i began to develop this practice of reading the say normative cultural material around me as queer and trans, like finding ways to to use queer and transness as a lens to see the world around me. All of that said, in some of my research, I guess this kind of started just before I entered the MFA program at UC Berkeley, I was trying to find ways to think about queerness and transness as this sort of organic, proliferating entity in the world I had been making these sort of floral works and thinking about florals as related to queerness 
if not queer in and of themselves, then sort of signaling queerness, flagging queerness. And I came upon a text, a a German text called The Poisonous Mushroom, which is a piece of Nazi propaganda that describes Jews as poisonous mushrooms and is specifically speaking to the ways in which mushrooms do not articulate explicitly their poisonousness, and that's a a kind of survival tactic. And because of that, because of the way in which mushrooms pass or blend in with edible mushrooms, they become quite threatening. And obviously, this is me interpreting this text, but the book itself is a children's book, and it goes on to almost act as like a field guide to describing the ways in which Jews operate in the world. You know, this is specifically Ashkenazi Jews, white Jews that pass as Aryan and therefore are threatening to the Aryan race. And there was something so fascinating to me about this, this text that describes the threatening quality of white Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, as being inherently linked to their ability to pass. And this felt really integral to transness and to queerness. And I started to think about fungus as a potential kind of representation of queerness and transness in the world. There are tons of ways in which fungus as an organism is this kind of queer organism, queer in the most kind of immediate sense, you know, in the ways in which it is not human or, you know, not animal, not plant, you know, it reproduces asexually, you know, it has this kind of abject quality to it. It's sort of sliminess creates this repulsion attraction relationship to those who sort of encounter it. There's a lot there, I think, that could be spoken to through the lens of queerness. And it became this kind of exciting subject for the work. And so I started building forms that were maybe in relationship to to fungus, particularly making these kind of body-sized sculptures and referring to them as figures specifically. You know, figures that are both solo and existing in the world as themselves, but then also these forms like kissing figures that are in relationship to each other and are very much this kind of relational form, relational forms. Yeah. And they also just look like they're amazingly fun to make into three-dimensional structures. Images and links on on manpodcast.com. Nikki Green, thanks very much. Thanks so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.